Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I'm so glad that you could join us today. We're going to be talking about the fastest growing neurological disorder in the world, and that's Parkinson's disease. Um, This is a disease that is sweeping not just the United States, but countries around the world. It's seeing a rapid spike in the instances of Parkinson's, and there's every reason to believe that part of that spike, if not uh, the majority of that spike, is not due to genetic factors alone, but to environmental factors. And so our guest today is perfectly poised to help us unravel the mystery of what's going on with this rapid spike in Parkinson's. He's the author of a book called Ending Parkinson's, A Prescription for Action. His name is Dr. Ray Dorsey. And previously, he directed the Parkinson's Disease Division at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Um, But he is currently the professor of neurology um, at the University of Rochester, where he directs the Center for Health and Technology. And I am so thrilled that you could join us and take time out of your schedule, Dr. Dorsey. Thanks so much. And welcome to Go Green Radio. The pleasure is all mine, Jill. Thank you very much. You know, in the, in the postscript of the paperback edition of Ending Parkinson's Disease, you refer to Parkinson's as a pandemic. And as we've been living through the COVID-19 pandemic, I, I'm wondering, is it fair to call it that? And, and if so, are there lessons that we can learn from the nation's response to COVID-19? Sure. Uh, so what is a pandemic? Um, so a pandemic has a few characteristics. I'll, I'll highlight three. One, it has wide geographic extension. Two, the disease moves, and three, there are explosive rates. Um, so as you indicated in your introduction, Parkinson's disease is the world's fastest growing brain disease, even faster than Alzheimer's disease. If you look at where the rates are highest, they're the highest in the industrialized parts of the world, like the United States and Canada. They're lowest in the least industrialized parts of the world, like sub-Saharan Africa, and they're growing most rapidly in the uh, most rapidly industrializing parts of the world, like China and India. Um, and it's moved. Um, the first major description of Parkinson's disease was by Dr. Parkinson in 1817 in London at the height of the Industrial Revolution. And since that time, uh, rates have uh, largely increased and migrated along the path of industrialization. Instead of it being like an infectious disease like COVID-19, which, you know, spreads uh, from a virus, it's spreading by likely different industrial factors, including air pollution, certain pesticides, um, and certain toxic chemicals, especially a decreasing agent called trichloroethylene. For those of us who may not have firsthand experience with a patient who has Parkinson's, talk to us about the disease. How does it affect the brain and and what happens to a patient's body and quality of life? So classically, uh, Parkinson's disease is characterized by um, four features. The first is a tremor, usually in the hands, usually occurring when someone's at at rest. Second is slowness in movement. Third is stiffness. And fourth is difficulties with walking or with uh, balance. Parkinson's disease is due to a loss of nerve cells in the uh, brain that uh, that produce a chemical called dopamine. The question is, is what's leading to the death of those uh, nerve cells in the brain? And we think it's, uh, those nerve cells in the brain are, are, um, have a million different connections. Each one of those nerve cells has a million different connections. And you can imagine if you're a nerve cell and you have a million different connections, you need a lot of energy to maintain those con- connections. 
And that energy, the engine for cells is in parts of the cells called the mitochondria. And many air pollutants, pesticides, and toxic chemicals all damage the energy-producing parts of cells, the mitochondrial toxins. So we think that there's a clear mechanism by which these environmental toxins are leading to Parkinson's disease and causing a disability for 1.2 million Americans today. Wow. Wow. You know, and this is so revolutionary. I mean, I've been doing this show since 2008, and we've talked about a variety of human health impacts that environmental pollution and environmental degradation can cause. But Dr. Dorsey, this is the first time that we've explored that vein of thinking um, with Parkinson's. And so again, I'm just so glad that you're with us. Help us understand both the genetic factors associated with Parkinson's as well as the environmental aspects. Um, you, you touched on it, but help us understand a little bit more about the environmental aspects that could increase a person's risk of Parkinson's. So uh, in the 1890s, a really famous uh, British neurologist named Sir William Gowers wrote the Bible of Neurology. And in it, he said, of my patients with Parkinson's disease, about 15% of them have a family history of the disease. So there are some genetic risk factors that do account for about 15, at most 20% of people who have Parkinson's disease. But said another way, 80% of Parkinson's disease is due predominantly due to environmental uh, factors. And um, those environmental factors likely interact with other environmental factors. And some of those environmental factors interact with uh, genetic factors to explain why farmers, for example, who are often exposed to pesticides, why some of those farmers develop Parkinson's disease and why some of those farmers uh, don't. The, the analogy I like to use is that we all know that smoking causes lung cancer, but it turns out that only 10% of smokers uh, develop lung cancer. So there have to be other factors in the environment and in our genes which explain why certain individuals develop lung cancer and why some don't. Well, and let's talk about uh, some of those environmental triggers. Um, you know, in the material that, you know, is along with your book and um, some of the articles that I've read that you have written, you've talked about these products and byproducts of the industrial revolution that are linked to the disease. And there are certain pesticides, chemicals, and air pollution. Help us understand exactly how these chemicals and pollutants affect the brain. Um, yes, yeah, so if we go back in time to 1817 when Dr. Parkinson, who was about 61 years old, when he's describing a condition in his words that had not been classified in the medical literature. So you're 61, you know, you've been around the block 30 years or so. His father was a physician. He had a good sense of what's new and what's not new. And he says, I'm describing something new when he watched people walking on the streets of London with a shuffling gait, a stooped posture, and a shaking hand. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that he's describing this uh, at the height of the Industrial Revolution and the Capital Industrial Revolution. Any of your listeners who's been watching um, the TV series The Crown know about the London Fog. And London Fog has little to do with weather and everything to do with air pollution. And uh, air pollution really took heart uh, in London and England as part of the Industrial Revolution. And that air pollution has tiny little particles in the air. They're called particulate matter. So if you've been in Los Angeles and you've seen smog, you know, you can actually see, you know, debris. These mm -hmm. are little uh, pieces of dirt and soot. And those pieces of dirt and soot, uh, most of them are caught in the hairs in your nose or in your throat. So you sneeze them out or you cough them out. But some of them are really, really small and they bypass the normal protective measures of the brain and they enter in through the nose. And when they get into the nose, they can then go back uh, into different nerve cells in the brain. 
and hitchhiking on those little tiny particle, uh, particles are toxic metals like lead uh, from leaded gasoline, uh, iron from brakes, platinum from uh, catalytic converters, and those metals are, can be very toxic to nerve cells. And so it turns out one of the earliest features of uh, Parkinson's disease is loss of smell. And when you look at the brains of people with Parkinson's disease, the pathology that you see is first found in the smell centers of the brain before it gets back to the parts of the brain that control movement. Mm-hmm. So that's how air pollution uh, can impact your brain and, and contribute to the disease. What about some of these pesticides and chemicals? How do they enter the body and have a similar effect? Um, so there are two major ways that we think the pesticides and these other chemicals enter the brain. Uh, one is the same way that the air pollution does through the nose. So if you're a farmer, um, you know, you're breathing in many of the toxic pesticides, many of which are actually nerve toxins, and many of which dissolve in fat in your brain's a fatty substance uh, that you're spraying onto the fields. And you don't need it to be a farmer to, to do this. You can be working in landscaping. You can be working on a golf course. You can be working in any wide range of uh, industries. And then um, if you're not breathing it in on a daily basis, many people uh, could be drinking it. Um, and so it turns out that uh, about 40 million Americans, up to one in eight Americans, get their water from private wells, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, are on their own property and as such are not regulated by the Safe Drinking Water Act and therefore are not regularly tested. And they're often contaminated from the runoff from pesticides. So people can be drinking pesticide-contaminated water for years or decades and never know it. And they could have done this when they were a child. Um, And the disease takes years or decades to unfold. And so the people who are developing Parkinson's today could be developing it as a result of pesticide exposure that they had decades earlier. You know, that that leads me to kind of a follow-on question, Dr. Dorsey. Do we know why there's so much lag time between, you know, maybe some of these chemical or or pollutant exposures and the onset of the disease? Are we there yet? Do we know why? We have some clues. So uh, the analogy to uh, to, uh, lung cancer is a useful one. You don't smoke a cigarette and develop lung cancer the next day or even the next year or even the next decade. There's usually about a 25-year lag, if not more, between the time you smoke cigarettes and the time you develop lung cancer because lung cancer takes years to develop. It's actually a series of different mutations that need to occur before the lung cancer becomes manifest or visible or develops uh, causes symptoms. The same thing is likely happening with Parkinson's disease. If the disease begins with loss of smell, you develop actually the loss of smell 20 years before you develop the tremor in some individuals. And then the pathology of uh, Parkinson's needs to spread from those smell centers back to the parts of the brain that control movement and can cause the external manifestations of the disease so that we can actually see them or that, you know, patients can actually say, hey, doc, my hand is shaking or I'm shuffling or having a little bit more trouble getting in and out of a a car or a low-seated sofa. And so doctors can actually visualize the damage. If we were looking in their brains, we would probably see the Parkinson's years, if not decades, sooner. But like many diseases, these things take years or decades uh, to unfold. If you were able to catch this, you know, years or decades before um, somebody actually developed the tremors and things like that, is there an intervention that's available? Um, so a lot of people are working on a new uh, treatments, new drugs uh, that could uh, do, do so. Um, mm-hmm. If we look at the COVID-19 pandemic, it's got some useful lessons. It's way easier to prevent COVID than it is to treat it. Mm-hmm. In fact, we 
we can prevent COVID really readily with vaccinations, but we have no cures for COVID-19 despite uh, being two years into the pandemic. And mm-hmm. we can prevent Parkinson's disease by preventing exposure to many of these pesticides. Some of these toxic pesticides like Paraquat have been banned by 30 countries, uh, including China, but are still permitted to be used in the United States. Um, and if we ban these things, we don't have to worry about uh, preventing the spread of the disease in the brain. We can just prevent yeah. the entry of the disease uh, to begin with. Good point. Um, Good point. And actually, helpful. we we want to. I want to delve into that really deeply very soon in the show. We're going to take a quick, quick commercial break, but then we'll be right back with more with Dr. Dorsey on Parkinson's disease right after this commercial break. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Dr. Ray Dorsey. Um, He and some of his co-authors have a book out called Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action. And right before we had to go to commercial break, Dr. Dorsey, you were talking about some of the chemicals um, that can can trigger, can, can lead to Parkinson's disease and how some of these chemicals are treated in other countries versus the United States. Could you go back and, and talk to us a little bit more in depth about that issue? Yeah. So the pesticide that's been most strongly linked uh, to Parkinson's disease is a pesticide called Paraquat. Uh, it was created in the 1950s. It's considered the most toxic herbicide ever created. It kills the weeds that Roundup doesn't. It's used to commit homicide and suicide, it increases the risk of Parkinson's by 150%, and over 30 countries, including China, have banned it. 
um, but the United States still permits its use. The EPA's own website says one sip can kill and documents stories of an eight-year-old boy drinking one sip of it that was left in a Dr. Pepper can or a soda can, and he subsequently died. Yet in this year, in 2021, the EPA reauthorized uh, its use. Uh, Fortunately, there have been lawsuits that have been brought uh, against uh, this reauthorization uh, seeking to ban um, this chemical like dozens of other countries around the world have. And give us a, a view of those countries, just so we can kind of benchmark ourselves. Who's banned this? Uh, the United uh, yeah, States so still hasn't. <laughs> uh, China, Syria, United Arab Emirates, um, uh, most countries in Europe have, have all banned uh, the chemical. Wow. Uh, it, wow. The United, England, England bans the chemical. England bans the chemical, but exports it to Brazil, Mexico, and the United States. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm gobsmacked right now, Dr. Dorsey. That, I mean, to think about a country, you know, with all the problems that they've had, Syria, you know, China, you know, we all know some of the issues there. Those countries have banned these chemicals, but the United States of America has not. I, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. Now, I want to talk about members. Of, go ahead. Did you want to mention something else? Yeah. So and it gets worse. Um, so use of the chemical has doubled in the last five years in the United States, uh, and it's covered. I mean, it's covered like it's used in upstate New York. You know, I went, uh, I went and visited a winery like 45 minutes from my house in Rochester, New York, that uses Paraquat. Um, he didn't know, he knew about some of the safety risks, but not all the safety risks. You know, um, there's just about the entire United States uh, that is covered by the chemical. The U.S. Geological Service uh, has great maps that you can see uh, the use of that Paraquat throughout the United States. Wow. Wow. I, I, I'm just speechless. Um, you know, I, I read about this issue with uh, Parkinson's. I even read an article that you wrote about Colin Powell. But why should members of the military and, of course, the people who love them and support them be particularly concerned about Parkinson's? Yeah, so there's at least three reasons why uh, veterans are, are at higher risk for uh, developing Parkinson's disease. The first is many veterans, especially those who served in Vietnam, were exposed to toxic herbicides, including Agent Orange and Agent Purple. Uh, You mentioned that General Colin Powell uh, served two tours of duty and was exposed uh, to these uh, toxic herbicides, which can cause uh, or link to Parkinson's disease. And, uh, of course, General Powell died from um, Parkinson's disease and multiple myeloma, which also uh, is linked uh, to these uh, toxic herbicides. Mm-hmm. Second reason is that many uh, people in the military uh, work with uh, machines or uh, tanks or cars or jet engines, and those jet engines and tanks uh, all have grease, and one of the world's great degreasing agents is a chemical called trichloroethylene. It's a really simple chemical. It's got six atoms, uh, two carbon atoms, a hydrogen atom, and three chlorine atoms, and it degreases everything uh, that's in its path but it also increases the risk of Parkinson's disease by 500%. Uh, oh so people my. who work with it or who drink contaminated water contaminated with it have an increased risk for developing the disease. There's a marine base in North Carolina called Camp Lejeune that was mm-hmm. uh, uh, tragically contaminated with uh, that chemical for 25 years. And the third reason is that many members of the military uh, suffer head trauma, and head trauma increases your risk of uh, Parkinson's disease. And uh, our earlier comments, interactions between, for example, head trauma and pesticides can substantially increase your risk of uh, Parkinson's. Wow. 
And and just as a side note, my husband and I are both veterans. He was in the Marine Corps, so we know Camp Lejeune. Um, and and I was in the Navy, and you know, ships are pretty greasy. And I can't help but wonder <laughs> if there's TCE, you know, on on any of those ships. I'm sure that that's a possibility. There's another article that in a section of your book that talks about Silicon Valley. And actually, Dr. Dorsey, I live just north of Silicon Valley in the East Bay of California. Why should Silicon Valley care about these environmental um, triggers and, and issues related to Parkinson's? They should care a lot um, because trichloroethylene uh, contaminates over half of Superfund sites in the United States, including... Uh, I think it's 12 along the seven miles of the 101 freeway uh, through Silicon Valley because TCE was used to uh, clean off silicon wafers um, when, uh, in the 1970s and uh, 80s. It was um, standard, uh, I don't know, you couldn't escape uh, TCE if you were in the mm-hmm. electronics or semiconductor uh, industry then. There's a super fun site that was contaminated by Fairchild Semiconductor, the company that founded Silicon Valley and Intel, a corporation, and on the top of that uh, sits one of headquarters of Google, and there are people who live uh, right across the street, and TC can get into the uh, soils, and when it's inappropriately disposed of, poured into the ground, gets into the soil and then the groundwater and forms underground plumes, and these underground plumes can have TCE evaporate from them, much like radon can evaporate from the soil. TCE mm-hmm. evaporates from these underground plumes, enters people's schools, workplaces, and homes undetected. And across the street from that Superfund site in Mountain View, California, there was a cluster of uh, brain cancer because uh, TCE is a carcinogen, and there was a cluster of uh, people with uh, Parkinson's disease. Holy moly. This, it's, it's kind of crazy to me that, you know, I'm so close to these kinds of stories. You know, I, I watch for these kinds of stories in, in mainstream media, and I'm so ashamed to say this is the first time that I'm hearing about this. And I, I'm so glad that we're able to discuss this on Go Green Radio because th- I have a sinking suspicion that there are millions and millions of Americans just like me, even if they really care about these issues that don't know about it. Um, in the yep. book, you all, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say there's a lot of doctors like me who didn't know about these issues until I had a gift of a sabbatical and I did the reading and, uh, you know, we've been documenting this rise in Parkinson's disease, but then I've read some great work by my colleague, Dr. Caroline Tanner at UC San Francisco, who over the last 20 years has documented the increased risk with uh, paraquat and pesticides, documented increased risk with trichloroethylene and other industrial chemicals, and we've largely neglected or failed to pay sufficient attention to her outstanding work. If we only paid attention, opened our eyes, uh, including me, and read her great work, we would uh, quickly recognize that uh, Parkin- that we're bringing Parkinson's disease upon ourselves to a great extent. Mm, that's chilling. In the book, you also call Parkinson's the scourge of the heartland. What do you mean by that? Explain that to us. Yeah, so as I mentioned, the uh, pesticides of nerve toxins are strongly associated with uh, Parkinson's disease, and there are a few states that actually systematically track the number of people who have Parkinson's disease. One of them is Nebraska, and if you uh, look at the rates of uh, Parkinson's disease in Nebraska, two to four times higher in the rural counties in Nebraska than they are uh, in, oh my gosh, forgetting the case, what's the major city in, uh, in Nebraska? Not Wichita, Omaha, then in Omaha. Omaha, yeah. Um, <laughs> then yeah. in Omaha. So, and I think a lot of people, a lot of farmers, a lot of people in rural areas, you know, they 
they're not ones to actively seek a medical attention. They don't hang out with neurologists, which tend to be in cities. I think there are a lot of people uh, with uh, farmers who have Parkinson's who are suffering in silence, unaware that they have a treatable condition and unaware of what's brought upon uh, that condition upon them. Well, and besides their occupational exposure to these pesticides linked to Parkinson's, um, how does the use of pesticides like these impact our food and drinking water so that, you know, people outside of actually the, the farmers and the farm workers can be impacted as well by these pesticides? Yeah, so they definitely impact the drinking water. So uh, people who drink their water from wells are at 75% increased risk uh, for developing Parkinson's disease. And it could be from the drinking the well or it could be them from inhaling the, the chemicals. Some of your older listeners might have remembered that DDT after World mm-hmm. War II was given a hero's welcome and used it indiscriminately. And uh, there would be trucks that would be spraying it. And yeah. kids would follow those trucks uh, when they would come to town and create uh, fog of yeah. pesticides. The other question that you alluded to is, you know, what about the impact on food? Uh, mm-hmm. And I just asked one of my colleagues who's done great work in France where he's documented that rates of Parkinson's disease uh, increase in vineyards. Vineyards are among the most uh, mm-hmm. uh, intensive users of uh, pesticides. And so in France, the, vineyards that, uh, the more vineyards you have, the higher rates of uh, Parkinson's disease. And these pesticide residues are obviously found on food, and they're even found in wine. Um, oh, my gosh. There was one study by basically the Consumer Reports of France that looked at like about 80 or 90 bottles of, of wine and detected pesticide residues in almost all of them, including one that had 50, residues of 15 different uh, pesticides. Now, it's unclear what impact these have in terms of developing Parkinson's disease. The dose may not be sufficient enough, but there are a wide range of other conditions linked to pesticides, including certain cancers, um, to which uh, these pesticides could be contributing. Wow. Wow. This is, uh, it's crazy that this isn't on, you know, cable news 24-7. This is huge. This is a, a huge issue. Yeah, the um, more you look, the more you find, and the scarier it gets. Yeah, and, and tell us how difficult or expensive it is to remediate, um, you know, homes that might have these plumes, you know, coming up or communities that are contaminated with TCE and other environmental pollutants that are triggers for Parkinson's. What are we up against in terms of remediating this these existing pollution areas? Yeah, so I'm not an environmental engineer, but this is where the good news comes in. This is all, to a great extent, uh, preventable. Um, you can test your water. Uh, if you have a well water, uh, we put resources in the uh, back of the book where you can get your well water tested and make sure it's pesticide-free and free of a TCE. You can put a, a carbon filter on your water at home, like I've started uh, to do after writing the book, to decrease mm-hmm. your exposure uh, to chemicals. Um, people have tested radon in their basements, and if you find radon in your basement, it's not the end of the world. You know, you can put a radon abatement system in, which basically sucks in, sucks out air from underneath your house and then vents it above your house, and you can do the same thing for TCE. And we highlight how one woman who lives across the street from that uh, Intel and Fairchild Semiconductor uh, Superfund site has done exactly that, and she now says she has the cleanest uh, indoor air in all of Mountain View, California. <laughs> um, and so these are all readily remediable. I mean, they're not terribly expensive. You know, I think it's like $1,000 or so for some of these remediation systems. 
which mm-hmm. is a fantastic investment when you consider that Parkinson's disease costs uh, the government $25,000 and individuals 20, another $25,000 uh, per year per person oh. with the disease. Wow. Well said. Dr. Dorsey and to our listeners, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more to discuss with Dr. Dorsey. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. We are talking about a really sobering and very important topic today. And, and you know, we've been doing Go Green Radio since 2008, and we've never covered this topic before. Um, and it's the environmental triggers of Parkinson's disease. And we are so honored to have Dr. Ray Dorsey, who's a subject matter expert and leader in the field of neurology, Um, talking with us today, his book called Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action is Outstanding. Uh, Highly recommend. I read it before the show, of course. And um, on the one hand, it really gives you a sobering look at the fact that, you know, about 80% of Parkinson's cases are are not genetic. Um, There are environmental factors involved. But it also gives us some good news about what's on the horizon for treatment, what we can do to prevent Parkinson's. I mean, that's the whole premise of his book, Ending Parkinson's. And so, Dr. Dorsey, I want to talk in this segment a little bit about treatment. Um, The most effective treatment that we know about for Parkinson's is about a half century old. Why has research funding into Parkinson's kind of stagnated in recent years? 
Yeah, so first, the good news is that we have a highly effective medication. In addition, I just want to put aside, exercises uh, can decrease your risk of ever developing Parkinson's, so a uh, good plug for exercising three and a half to four hours a day. And for people with the disease, exercise can be uh, incredibly helpful. On the medication front, we said at the outset that Parkinson's disease is due to loss of nerve cells uh, in the brain that produce a chemical called dopamine. When uh, scientists figured that out in the 1960s, they said, well, why don't we get the dopamine back, which led to the development of a medication called levodopa, which basically gets converted to dopamine in the brain and is highly effective, improves the quality of life for millions of people uh, with uh, Parkinson's disease. But we've had more therapeutic breakthroughs for Parkinson's disease last century than we've had this century. We need better objective measures of the disease. So, for example, when you go to your doctor's office for your annual checkup, you might get your blood cholesterol checked or you might get weighed. And so you can tell if your exercise, whether your uh, cholesterol level goes down or whether your weight uh, improves because you can just step on a scale or get a blood test. We don't have those good measures of progression of uh, Parkinson's disease. We rely on crude uh, uh, estimations by uh, subjective experts like me uh, to determine whether someone's getting better or worse. And you can imagine when that subjectivity is spread across hundreds of different um, uh, clinicians, it's really hard to determine whether something's working or not working. So if we get better measures of the disease, we're going to get better treatments faster. Well, and it's, you know, we sometimes it's so easy to think, oh, we're, you know, we're just starting the 21st century. Not really. We're getting really, really close to a quarter of the way done. And when we haven't had any breakthroughs in this century so far, that's, you know, that that's really... That's stagnated and then some. Um, what are some of the most promising treatments that you're seeing on the horizon? So there's a two. One, I targeted um, a genetic mutation um, that's responsible for maybe about 2 to 3% of people with Parkinson's disease. So just like in cancer, you have gene-directed uh, treatments. Parkinson's disease, we're trying to come up with those gene-directed treatments. But like cancer and Parkinson's disease, the vast majority of cancers and the vast majority of Parkinson's disease have little to do with genetics and everything to do with the environment. Think, you know, for example, uh, lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Second is we know that uh, some of these genetic mutations and some of these environmental toxins lead to a misfolding of proteins uh, in the brain of people with Parkinson's disease. And so there are ideas, you know, just like we're giving immunizations to attack a foreign virus, can you give immunizations to people with Parkinson's disease if it's a attack this misfolded, abnormally shaped uh, protein in the brains of Parkinson's disease so, so you can prevent the spread of Parkinson's disease, you know, for example, from the smell centers to the parts of the brain that control movement to the parts of the brain that control thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and in terms of care for Parkinson's patients, besides, you know, some of the treatments, are there some advancements in the way that we care for Parkinson's patients? Yeah, so if you think about it, it's kind of odd that we ask patients with Parkinson's disease or really any illness um, to come travel to see generally healthy clinicians. Uh, Healthy clinicians should be seeing patients on their terms and not patients seeing doctors on their terms. It's the other way around. We should bring care to patients, not patients to care. And one of the silver linings of the COVID-19 pandemic was the rise and the widespread adoption of a telemedicine, which allowed patients with Parkinson's disease and many other conditions to receive care in their home. Those uh, measures that were taken by uh, the U.S. government or by Medicare are temporary, and we need to make sure that those uh, changes that have allowed widespread adoption have allowed 50 million, uh, medic- 50 million visits um, for Medicare beneficiaries, we make sure that those temporary changes are made permanent uh, by Congress. And there are about 40 or 100 different bills in front of Congress that would help to do that, but we need to make sure that they actually happen. 
You know what? I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit more about that because I, I read about that in the book, uh, you know, as one of the things that we can advocate for. But I think that there might be some listeners who are surprised to learn how integral um, public policy is in terms of whether or not you can you can have access to telemedicine. Help us understand why this is a matter of public policy and not just your doctor's preference. Yeah, it has nothing to do with doctors. It has everything to do with Medicare. Mm-hmm. So um, Medicare was created in 1965 uh, with explicit purpose to guarantee access to health care to older Americans at a time in 1965 when half of Americans didn't have that access. Today, Medicare is widely viewed by Republicans and Democrats and by all it's one of the most successful uh, federal uh, policies, and it guarantees access to, for people, um, older individuals, uh, for health care. Um, but before the COVID-19 pandemic, it required patients to go see their physicians. Less than one out of every thousand visits, less than one out of every thousand visits uh, was conducted by telemedicine. And as we mentioned, uh, there are a lot of people in the heartland. There are a lot of people, veterans who don't live near urban areas and don't live near neurologists or Parkinson specialists. And over 40% of Medicare beneficiaries with Parkinson's disease do not see a neurologist within three years of diagnosis. And those that don't see a neurologist are more likely to fracture their hip, more likely to be placed in a skilled nursing facility, and more likely to die. Telemedicine is a beautiful tool. It, can, it brings back the traditional house call. It's the next generation of the house call where the patient, the physician or clinician can see a patient in their natural environment and bring care to them instead of asking patients who are burdened, have impaired driving ability and overburdened caregivers to travel to go see doctors. You know, that's that's such a powerful thing. And I know, I, I think I read that you've been doing telemedicine for like a decade. Is that right? So you didn't wait for COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, no, we started in 2007. My colleague, Dr. Kevin Biglin, and I, I started seeing residents of a nursing home uh, in upstate mm-hmm. New York in a town called New Hartford, New York, I think population of 20,000. They had 50 residents in their nursing home with Parkinson's. And, you know, nursing homes aren't frequently, aren't frequently visited by a neurologist. And so they really had no one to care for them. And we saw people who came into the nursing home on like a really, really low dose of levodopa and that hadn't been changed in 10 years. And when we did that, they had remarkable improvements. We saw people in that nursing home who developed Parkinson's after coming to the nursing home and had never been diagnosed. We literally had, you know, almost Lazarus-type uh, moments where we took people out of wheelchairs and that had them walking again. Um, we know that this is happening uh, throughout the country uh, and, quite frankly, throughout the world. We know that there are large portions, if not majority, of individuals with Parkinson's in different parts of the world that have never been diagnosed with the disease, even though it's an eminently treatable disease. It's akin mm-hmm. to having people having seizures and not getting medications to treat their seizures. Is Parkinson's difficult to diagnose? I mean, talk to us about what patients go through between the onset of symptoms and a diagnosis of Parkinson's. Yeah, so the typical uh, patient takes two years between the time they start pursuing a diagnosis and the time they get a diagnosis. And Mm -hmm. even in the United States, maybe 20 or 30% of people with Parkinson's uh, have not been diagnosed uh, with uh, the disease. It's actually not that hard to diagnose in most cases. Some cases can be challenging, but in most Mm -hmm. cases, if you have, you know, tremor and a shuffling gait and you're uh, north of 50, uh, the Mm -hmm. list of possibilities gets really short. I think people have to recognize that this is not normal aging. This is abnormal. This is a disease, a treatable disease. And then go and ask their clinician, uh, do I have a Parkinson's disease? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I have to ask because a lot of people, you know, they, they feel so helpless when they hear about, you know, super fun sites in Silicon Valley and pesticides that could be leaching into their drinking water. Um, you know, they, they feel small and they feel powerless sometimes to protect themselves. But are there lifestyle changes that people can make that can lessen their risk for Parkinson's? Yeah, and let me talk about lifestyle and that powerlessness. Um, uh, so, sure, there are lifestyle changes. We told you at the outset uh, earlier that uh, your exercise in your 40s and 50s and 60s can decrease your risk of ever developing Parkinson's by 20% and beneficial uh, for uh, people with the disease. A Mediterranean mm-hmm. diet, high in fruits and vegetables, low in animal products may decrease your risk of ever developing uh, Parkinson's disease and can be beneficial for people with the disease. But let me tell you about powerlessness. So in 1981, the New York Times ran a, a, a front-page story highlighting a, a rare cancer happening among gay men. And at that time, there was a uniformly and rapidly fatal illness that was affecting uh, gay men uh, in New York City, and there was no federal response. These people were, uh, pil- um, were blamed uh, for their own condition when an unknown uh, virus uh, that was subsequently identified as HIV, which was a largely foreign uh, foreign and new, was identified, and a group of activists in New York City uh, formed an organization called ACT UP, and their motto was silence equals death. Mm -hmm. Uh, Silence equals death. And they were galvanized by themselves, and they took over the NIH, they took over the FDA, they took over the New York Stock Exchange, they took over a pharmaceutical company, they created a quilt that covered the National Mall and changed the course of that disease. 16 years later, 16 years after the first reports of this rare cancer, New York Times, they developed uh, protease inhibitors, which have led to a near normal life expectancy for people with uh, HIV. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in the span of 16 years, they took something that was uniformly and rapidly fatal and made it among the most treatable conditions associated with a near normal life expectancy. And the process that prevented thousands and millions of people, including, you know, potentially you and me and our family and friends Mm -hmm. from ever developing HIV in the first place. You know what's so interesting? So we can do, and it, if, yeah, so we can it, do this for Parkinson's. <laughs> we can. We can. And I, what's so interesting about the ACT UP model, because we've talked about it many times over the course of the years about it, it being such a fantastic model for getting things done when it comes to advocacy, is that you know there was a there was a defined set of patients um, and there was a defined set of people who cared about them who united. And one of the things I wonder with Parkinson's is, is it so um, ubiquitous? I mean, there's so many different kinds of people that are impacted by it. Does that dilute or does that empower the community affected by Parkinson's to do something very similar to what, what happened with HIV. I don't know what you think about that. Um, okay. So two answers. So, you know, in fairness, uh, HIV affected uh, men who generally had some, many of them had financial means. Many were reasonably well-educated. Many of them didn't have dependents. Um, many of them uh, had the time. And Parkinson's tends to affect older individuals, but, you know, we've seen this happen for, it was not just HIV. We saw this with a March of Dimes in polio. 16 years after you had a March of Dimes, you had a vaccine for polio. We saw this in the 1980s when Mothers Against Drunk Driving was formed because they got tired of their children getting killed in car accidents by drunk drivers. And they said, the solution to this isn't uh, better trauma centers, but stopping, stopping drinking and driving. 
and we have 1.2 million Americans. And for Parkinson's, with Parkinson's disease, for the disease, silence doesn't equal death, but it equals suffering, needless and preventable suffering. If those 1.2 million Americans, their friends and their families gather their voice, they can change the course of the disease just as it's been done for polio, just as it's been done for drunk driving, and just as it's been done for HIV. Right on. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Dr. Ray Dorsey. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Dr. Dorsey, I I think I know the obvious answer to this question, but I'm going to expand the question a little bit to give you some some leeway here. But since you wrote a book called Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action, I'm assuming that you foresee a time when we'll actually be able to prevent Parkinson's. And so what do you think might be a realistic date for that? And and what is it going to take to get us there? Um, so it's going to, first of all, it's going to take, it's going to take people to find their voice and make their voices heard. And unless people make their voices heard, a change doesn't happen. And the people who uh, are best positioned to make their voices heard are those people who know the disease most intimately, including those with the disease. So we need a million more Michael J. Foxes, a million more Davis Finneys, a million more Brian Grants, a million more Alan Aldas to make their voices heard so that awareness of Parkinson's disease increases, funding increases. And we can take public policy actions to prevent this disease. So when could this happen? Um, I mentioned uh, two examples. Uh, the, the March of Dimes began in 1938 when people mailed in dimes to the White House uh, uh, because Franklin Delano Roosevelt had polio. And they wanted to raise money to prevent not Franklin Delano Roosevelt from getting polio. He already had it. Mm-hmm. And not to cure Dr. Delano Roosevelt, I mean, uh, President Delano Roosevelt, because he already had the disease but to prevent other people from getting it. And 16 years later, 1954, Jonas Salk uh, developed his vaccine, which essentially eradicated polio from the United States and the vast majority of the rest of the world. Um, the second example is uh, the HIV activists. We went 1981 New York Times uh, article to 1987, protease inhibitors helping people like Magic Johnson, who we, many of us thought was going to die uh, and uh, gone on to do outstanding things and is still living 
and robust. Uh, in the span of 16 years, you went from a uniformly fatal condition to one associated with a near-normal life expectancy when treated. So I think, you know, a 15 to 16, 15 to 20-year uh, time frame can help you change the course of uh, Parkinson's disease. Some people have already had those exposures, so we might, they might be more limited in what we can do for them. We can certainly prevent subsequent generations uh, from ever developing Parkinson's disease. As a physician, I can't think of a better gift than to eradicate diseases for future generations. No kidding. I, I think, you know, here's what I keep looking at. When I think about, you know, the model of HIV and polio, what, at least as far as I know, was absent from that equation that is a variable in this equation is the existence of big chemical companies. And to me, you know, we, we've talked about the human health impacts of pesticides, herbicides, other chemicals, like we've talked about PFAS on this show and, and you know, what it can do to human beings and, and how ubiquitous it is in our drinking water supply in certain places now. And the, the difficulty seems to be, and maybe I'm just being cynical, that, you know, in order to get the public policy that we need, we have to overcome the lobbying capabilities of those large companies. And I don't know, you know, what your thoughts might be about that, but it seems like that's a, that's an ingredient that didn't exist in the HIV and polio examples. I, I think chemical companies are far less daunting than being uh, homosexual in the 1980s. Well, that's true. That's true. It's just the counter cash, I guess. And I think that's what, you know, people who are going to advocate for this have got to be savvy about and, and, and very, whatever the I mean, opposite of naive is because people with, people with yeah. Parkinson's aren't ostracized. I mean, all challenge, yeah. all great movements have challenges. Uh, you know, uh, you're right. Uh, who's the man who did uh, seatbelts? Uh, Ralph Nader, right? He was yeah. overcoming the automobile industry and how many yep. millions of us are living today? How many millions of accidents have we not had? How many injuries have we not suffered? because of Ralph Nader and he taking on the auto industry at the height of yep. his power. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. If we don't take it, there's, you really just can't accept excuses. You just have to, like, we know what the problem is. That's what the book is uh, put the evidence forth. Some people can mm-hmm. disagree. But the, the evidence uh, out there, we need, now need to summon the will to change um, the, course, uh, 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 the course of this disease. I mean, 200 people are going to be diagnosed today with this disease. 100 people in the United States are going to die with this disease. Today, there is no uh, brain diseases are the leading source of disability in the entire world, and Parkinson's disease is the fastest growing of those brain diseases. What do we all fear? We all fear losing our minds. We all fear losing our minds. And so, if we don't take actions to correct the course of Parkinson's disease, to correct the course of Alzheimer's disease, we're all going to spend the last 10 to 15 to 20 years of our life with a debilitating brain condition that robs us of our independence, robs us of our relationships or we're going to be caring for someone with one of these diseases. Well said, Dr. Dorsey. And that's the fight that we've got to be able to take and knowing who we're up against. And it's going to be the manufacturers of some of these chemicals that are going to put up the biggest difficulties, but we can overcome those. I do believe that. And I think your, your, you know, what you just said, your manifesto is what we have to take and overcome any obstacles that are, present themselves. I think you're 100% right, but I think we need to be ready to direct that towards the manufacturers of the chemicals that are contributing to this. And if we can do Listen, that collectively, chemi- yeah. 
It's also on the chemist. Uh, you know, uh, TCE was developed in the 1910 in Germany, 1920s in the United States. We've known about its toxicity since at least 1932. Uh, Paraclaw, as we said earlier, was developed in the 1950s. None of us drive cars from the 1920s, and none of us fly planes from mm-hmm. the 1950s because there are safer alternatives. If engineers cannot come up with safer alternatives for transportation, chemists can come up with uh, safer alternatives for degreasing and for killing pests. I love that. That is exactly right. You you are spot on. And I'm so glad that you, you know, you formulated it that way for us. You know, give us some idea of what it could cost just our country alone in terms of economic impact. If we don't act now, how is Parkinson's going to impact this country economically? And so right now it's costing in the United States $50 billion per year, about $50,000 per uh, individual with a, a Parkinson's disease. Half of that's in uh, taxpayers' funds uh, for Medicare. It's about $25,000 of increased health care expenses per person with uh, Parkinson's. Another 25% either lost wages or um, uh, caregiver support for people with the disease. Uh, it's a leading cause of nursing home placements for which we pay through taxpayers through Medicaid. One third of one out of every three Medicaid dollars doesn't go to women and children. It goes to older adults to um, provide care for them in institutions. Um, and we've seen how COVID-19 has wreaked uh, havoc on those institutions. Um, so we're paying for it uh, on the back end um, instead of paying for it on the front end. So I told you it costs uh, $5 billion just in Medicare. We spend the NIH National Institutes of Health spends about $250 million, $1 for every $100 that Medicare spends on Parkinson's we spend in trying to coming up with new treatments and very little effort aimed at preventing the disease. So we can choose to make uh, choose the, the status quo and pay uh, for Parkinson's on the back end, or we can choose a new course, uh, a course where we can prevent people from ever developing Parkinson's, save lives, and save us a lot of uh, taxpayer dollars in the process. Well, that's well said. And we have about 30 seconds left in the show. What would you like to share with our listeners in that final few moments? Well, first off, if any of your listeners have any questions, they can always email me at info at endingpd.org, info at endingpd.org. Um, we'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. And if you can't afford a copy of the book and you'd like one, just request one, give us your mailing address, and we'll send you one for free. Um, you know, this is a big challenge. It's one of the great uh, challenges of our society is how to deal with these brain diseases that are robbing us of our independence. If we take action, we can find out the way to doing this is not to treat or cure these diseases, but to prevent them in the first place. We've learned that from the COVID-19 that. pandemic. We should Absolutely. apply the same lessons to Parkinson's. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Dorsey, for joining us. Great, great piece of information that you've given us. Get the book, Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action. Well, that's all we have for Go Green Radio today, folks. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.